America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the president and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. On the 8th of August 1974, Richard Nixon, the 37th President of the United States, became the first and so far only US President to resign because of scandal. So you might be wondering, quite rightly, what inspired this episode? Well, it's important to remember that 2022 marks the 50th anniversary of what would come to be known as the Watergate scandal. I'll go into greater detail further into this particular episode because it is a big can of worms and I don't want to overburden with the details because otherwise it would be hours long this particular podcast but anyway the other part is related to the voice you heard at the very beginning while you think about who it was who did that voice I'll go into the background of Watergate but before delving into Watergate and what happened I first need to establish who Richard Nixon was Richard Milhouse Nixon was a US politician born in 1913 in Yoba, in Yoba California and spent his political career serving under the Republican Party Rising to prominence in the Red Scare of the post-World War II years, politically, he was Vice President to World War II General turned President Dwight D. Eisenhower from 1953 to 1961. He ran for President himself in 1960 to John F. Kennedy. Or against John F. Kennedy, I should say. However, in an extremely close election, where the margin in the popular vote was only around 100,000 um, in favour of the winner, Kennedy, Nixon lost that election. However, two years later, he stood for another election for the Republican Party, this time for the governorship of his home state of California. He was defeated for the second time, this time giving a very bitter concession speech. As I leave you, I want you to know, just think how much you're going to be missing. 
You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Nothing could have been further from the truth, however. The significance of the words, this is my last press conference, and what Nixon said about how they, quote, were going to be missing things with him not being there, is testament to the fact that he didn't exactly have a comfortable relationship with the press, let's be honest. And he believed that the quote-unquote liberal establishment shafted him in both 1960 in the presidential election and 1962 in the California governoral election. However, the truth is, as I was saying, that Nixon was in fact biding his time. He deliberately did not run um, for office in 1964 because Lyndon Johnson was the incumbent president having assumed office after the assassination of Kennedy. So as such was very popular nationwide. But, but, but four years after that, in 1968, it was a very different story. You see, at the time, the US was deeply involved in the war in Vietnam, which was going disastrously wrong. So as a result, Nixon put himself forward as the alternative to Johnson. Little did he realise the curveball that was going to be thrown in. Because in the build-up to the election that year, Johnson surprised even his closest colleagues when he announced that he was not going to stand for renomination, let alone the election in 1968. And you'd have thought that would have been a golden opportunity. Because after all, he was, Nixon I mean, putting all his eggs in the campaign sense to defeating the incumbent president. However, with Johnson gone, you'd have thought that it would have made things much easier. But he had to reset. As a result, he started doing what he, what led to him, I should say, getting the nickname Tricky Dicky. Because throughout his career, Richard Nixon, during campaigns, how can I put this? He would always go for the slam dunk. In other words, he would not uh, play nice. What he would do, as shown in his uh, Senate election victory in 1950, he depicted his opponent, Helen Gehagen Douglas, in that election, as pink, right down to her underwear. What he was getting at was he was accusing her 
of being crypto-communist. And as a result, won by a landslide. By 1968, when he was mounting a second assault in the presidency, another curveball was thrown in to the mix in the sense that the man who ultimately secured the Democratic Party nomination, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, gave a speech that uh, turned the tide of the polls, which had been favouring Nixon up to that point, towards a closer finish. Because Humphrey announced that he would stop the bombing of North Vietnam as an acceptable risk for peace. In a panic, Nixon did something very strange, it could be said in retrospect. He asked to be put on the phone to Lyndon Johnson. Yes, that's right, you heard me correct. He was on the phone to Lyndon Johnson. During which he said the following. This will be interpreted, as I'm sure you know, as a dramatic move away from the administration. It's my intention not to move in that direction. In other words, what he was saying to the president was he felt that Humphrey's move was too radical and that he was in all but words saying that he was supporting the president in his stance with Vietnam. And come election night, uh, this time the odds worked out in favour of Nixon. And he, as a result, was elected the 37th President of the United States. Over the next few years, from his inauguration in 1969 through to the time of his second inauguration in 1973, it could be said that he had a very, largely at least, successful first term. During that time, he improved relations with the Soviet Union, he had opened the diplomatic door to communist China, the 18-year-old vote had been enacted, so in other words, people participating in presidential elections could now be 18 years of age or older, and in general, overturned, <coughs> excuse me, he overturned around 25 years worth of Cold War history. So by 1972, 10 years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he had thawed relations between East and West, trying to create a period called détente. In other words, a relaxing of tension between East and West. However, the seeds for Nixon's ultimate downfall were sown in 1971. That year, Daniel Ellsberg, a former government employee, leaked 
thousands of pages of the confidential study United States Vietnam relations 1945 to 1967 this file came to be known as the Pentagon Papers you might think given that he was bitterly opposed to the Democratic Party that Nixon would perform a piece of political jiu-jitsu and say I told you the Democrats were cro were were crooked and I and this leaking is proof but instead he treated it as a threat to national security and in a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court in the case called New York Times v United States the court voted six to three in favor of the papers so as a result Nixon was embarrassed by the publications even though the study ended before he even took office and for some reason possibly due to his paranoia he decided to create an in-house in White House at least investigative unit to discredit people who could uh, hamper his uh, diplomacy in trying to end the Vietnam War and and through it detente see the White House plumbers for example plumbers not in a uh, plumbing as in water plumbing sense but plumbing as in plugging leaks that could affect his diplomacy so the first job one of the first jobs of the White House plumbers was to break into the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist the idea was to try and find evidence that could discredit Ellsberg in in a way they failed incidentally so instead the plumbers were brought into the fold of the committee to re-elect the president CRP or creep and to achieve this aim they were brought in to try and gain insight into the campaign tactics of the Democratic Party so to achieve this the plumbers broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex on the banks of the Potomac River in Washington DC this happened in May 1972 now I know what you're thinking hang on I thought that the Watergate break-in took place in June 1972 Simon well 
that's just it. <clears throat> because when people tend to talk about Watergate and uh, the so-called break-in, they often place it as one break-in. They refer to it as the break-in. But the truth is, there was more than one. As I shall explain. So the first of the break-ins at the Watergate took place on the 28th of May 1972. This break-in was to plant cameras, wiretaps and recording devices around the Democratic National Committee headquarters to try and uh, gain insight into DNC campaign tactics. However, even though the CRP had operatives taking detailed notes about conversations that were going on, they weren't really gaining any insight into actual campaign tactics as such. They were just mainly eavesdropping on campaign gossip. So instead, to rectify this, a second break-in was authorised. This one in June 1972. The intent of this break-in was to repair one of the wiretaps, which was discovered to be faulty. It was during this break-in that the security guard at the Watergate, Frank Wills, noticed that one of the doors to, from the car park of the Watergate had been taped, even though he knew that the cleaning staff had gone home. At this point, he called the police. Eventually, the police arrived and arrested the five burglars who were found at the scene. So as the burglary took place in Washington, D.C., it makes sense for the local newspaper, the Washington Post, to publish a story about it. Now, extraordinary as it may seem in hindsight, the truth is the burglary was not seen as that significant in the grand scheme of things at the time. This explains why two apparently low-ranking, at the time at least, reporters from the Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, stepped up to the plate and uh, took notes of the unfolding story. During the questioning of the burglars after they were arrested, the lead burglar, James McCord, revealed that he had previously worked for the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And this was astonishing to those doing the questioning. 
What's more, one of the burglars had an address book that had Howard Hunt's name in it. Howard Hunt was someone who worked in the White House. Now we're getting somewhere. You see, part of the intent of using the White House burglars, the White House plumbers, I should say, to break into the Watergate, was to distance the plumbers from the White House itself during the campaign season of 1972. So, with this in mind, it was potentially problematic, at least, for Hunt to be associated with the burglary. Especially as Hunt had previously worked for one of the members of Richard Nixon's inner circle, Charles Colson. As revelation after revelation appeared, Nixon was getting more and more anxious. However, he had an idea up his sleeve, which he con concocted together with his chief of staff, Harry Robbins Bob Halderman who, incidentally, together with Nixon's domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, came to be nicknamed the Berlin Wall. They concocted a plan to cover up the Watergate break-in, to, to make it seem like it was a CIA operation, and basically to tell the FBI to stay out of investigating it. What could possibly go wrong? While Woodward and Bernstein were doing their investigations, it transpired that while working as Nixon's Attorney General, John Mitchell controlled a secret Republican Party fund to gather information about the Democrats. As their boss at the time, Benjamin Bradley, said, quote, There's never been a story like this. You're going to call the Attorney General of the United States a crook. I won't use the language that uh, John Mitchell used when Carl Bernstein called him up. However, needless to say, he wasn't happy and the gist of it was he threatened the owner and publisher of the Washington Post Catherine Graham so as time went on in 1972 very little interest in the general public was happening over Watergate they were more interested in the unfolding election. Nixon, how can I put this, he achieved one of the biggest landslide victories in American history. He secured 520 out of 535, no 538 sorry, 
electoral votes available. And George McGovern, the Democratic Party opponent, secured 17 electoral votes. And it wasn't even his home state of South Dakota either. It was instead Massachusetts, plus the three available from the District of Columbia. You notice that that doesn't add up to 538, incidentally. That's because one faithless elector in Virginia voted for the Libertarian Party candidate, John Hospers. But I digress. Back to Watergate. So, Nixon was easily re-elected. And on the 20th of January, 1973, he took the oath of office as president once again. And looked set to have an easy second term. However, James McCord threw a big spanner into the works for him. At the sentencing of the five burglars, he sent, he gave a letter to the judge at the hearing, John Surica. The gist of it was, quote, There was political pressure for the burglars to plead guilty and remain silent. What this did was it hinted at a larger conspiracy and interest in what happened in June 1972 was blown wide open and the nation was hooked as the Senate of the United States started investigations into the Watergate break-ins. Led by Democratic Senator Sam Irvin, the investigation questioned various members of the Republican Party and Nixon's inner circle. Sam Irvin summed it up when he opened the hearings with the following. We are beginning these hearings today in an atmosphere of utmost gravity. The questions that have been raised in the wake of the June 17 break-in strike at the very underguarding of our democracy. If the many allegations made to this date are true, then the burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate were in effect breaking into the home of every citizen of the United States. And if these allegations proved to be true, what they were seeking to steal was not the jewels, money or other property of American citizens, but something much more valuable, the most precious heritage, their right to vote in a free election. Unquote. At first it perceived as if Nixon could ride out this potential storm in a teacup that was Watergate. After all, he gave a televised address on the around the time the break-in occurred, in which he said the following. What really hurts in matters of this sort 
It's not the fact that they occur. Because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts is if you try and cover it up. As you, as you will see, they were wise words, but if only he'd heeded them. So one by one, Nixon's inner circle were questioned. Or at least active and also former members of Nixon's inner circle. The first significant blow to Nixon with regards to the investigation came when his former legal counsel, John Dean, testified before the Senate Watergate Committee. There, Dean revealed that he had discussed the cover-up of the break-in at the Watergate several times with the President, including the specific words that there was, quote, a cancer on the presidency, unquote. Nixon publicly denied this revelation. However, the biggest stumbling block yet, and arguably what began to turn in terms of the public's view on the president, was the words of his uh, deputy assistant, Alexander Butterfield. While being questioned by the Senate Watergate Committee, Butterfield was asked the following question. Was there ever any listening device installed in the Oval Office or the Executive Office building of the President? And Butterfield confirmed the rumours that the President had been taping his conversations. He even went in depth in terms of how long Nixon had been recording these conversations. As far back as 1970. Now you might be wondering, why was Nixon doing this? Why was he recording his conversations in the Oval Office? Well, the answer is very simple. You see, he wanted to provide material for his memoirs. And this was a way to enable him to remember what he was saying on any given day and to note it down for future generations. After all, he wanted to, in the uh, words of uh, the poet Longfellow, he wanted to leave, quote, footprints on the sands of time. He wanted to leave his mark on history, basically. It could be argued, however, that he'd already done that with uh, his first term, what he actually accomplished, as mentioned earlier. But all, it's, all it did with this revelation, all it did was provide a solid background to substantiate what John Dean had been saying. Nixon ordered the remaining uh, recording systems to be disconnected so that anything incriminating wouldn't be accidentally recorded. But it was too late. 
over time, Nixon kept being asked by various people, including the uh, special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, to hand over the, the tapes. He subpoenaed them, basically, but Nixon refused, citing executive privilege. Does that sound familiar? Anyway. Um, so, in, all, in a desperate attempt to stop what was going on, Nixon ordered his attorney, his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, to fire Archibald Cox. Richardson refused and resigned. Nixon then ordered the deputy attorney general, William Ruckelshaus. He too refused and resigned. So instead, he, Nixon ordered the Solicitor General, Robert Bork, to fire Cox. Bork obliged, Cox was fired, and the result was inevitable. The press dubbed this action the Saturday Night Massacre. And although Nixon thought that he was protecting himself by distancing himself from those associated with Watergate, it, it actually did the opposite. What it did was it peeled off another layer, leaving him more and more vulnerable. And this action only seemed to confirm it. So eventually, he caved to the pressure and hired a new special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski. But unfortunately for the president, Jaworski, like Cox, subpoenaed the tapes. Nixon tried to find a compromise, let's say, by releasing 1,200 pages of edited transcripts of the tapes. This was nowhere near enough. No, not even close. The, the House of Representatives were less than impressed. And by 1974, it culminated in the Supreme Court stepping in. And in a case that came to be known as United States v. Nixon, three guesses why, the president lost to the Supreme Court. Even though one justice recused himself, in other words, he didn't actively participate in the uh, proceedings because he felt he'd been too biased, even with that, the remaining eight justices on the court presiding over this decision were unanimous. Eight to zero. In other words, Richard Nixon was ordered to release the unedited tapes. And while it was while this was going on that not only were the public aware of an 18 and a half minute gap that appears to have been erased deliberately, but also it was around the time the tape that came to be known as the smoking gun came to came to the public's attention. In this tape, 
Nixon is heard speaking to his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman. And Haldeman and Nixon were discussing the cover-up just days after the break-ins. And during this, Nixon is clearly heard saying for the FBI to, quote, not go any further into this case, period. During this time also, constituents of both houses of Congress flooded their representatives with letters, telegrams, etc., calling for accountability on the president. As a result, the House of Representatives passed not one, not two, but three articles of impeachment against the president. They were as follows. Obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress. And you might be wondering, would Nixon have survived the articles of impeachment if he hadn't resigned? Well, the short answer is no. Even members of his own party were poised to vote against him. That's why he resigned, ultimately, announcing his resignation on the 8th and actually resigning officially on the 9th. So what are we to make of all this? What are we to make of the fact that Richard Nixon earned a dubious place in history by becoming the first and, as mentioned earlier, so far only president to resign because of scandal. Well, let's think about what happened after Watergate for a moment. Well, on the day Richard Nixon resigned, his vice president, Gerald Ford, took the oath of office and became the 38th president of the United States. That sounds awfully simple, right? And in a way it is, but there's a bit more to it that I'll go into later. But one month after Ford took office, he made what could be said was a fateful decision. He chose to pardon Richard Nixon. So Nixon suddenly went from someone who was potentially facing time in prison because of what had happened under his watch and that he had authorised during the last years of his presidency to suddenly having nobody coming for him as a result of his actions. But back to Gerald Ford. He wasn't Nixon's original vice president. You see, from 1969 to 1973, Spiro Agnew had been vice president to Richard Nixon. However, in an issue unrelated to Watergate, it was just a coincidence that he happened to be 
neck deep in a scandal of his own, Spiro Agnew became only the second vice president to resign, the first being John Calhoun way back in the 1820s. But anyway, the reason Agnew resigned was because of the, a scandal that came up related to him taking bribes when he was governor of Maryland. So Nixon was forced to nominate a replacement and he chose Gerald Ford as a way to try and stabilise the nation at a time when it was going downhill, let's say, related to Watergate. So Ford, as part of the 25th Amendment, was appointed Vice President. He wasn't voted in by the American people, nor the Electoral College. And the same applies for how he became President. Whereas other accidental presidents, like John Tyler, Millard Fillmore, ones like that, they were elected to the position of vice president with the president, to some degree. But Ford wasn't that. Ford is the first and so far only president to have never been elected for high office in the government. So he was appointed vice president and appointed... Yeah, he was appointed vice president and latterly president. But few remember that uh, the the, uh, process had to repeat itself after Ford stepped up to the higher office of president. Nelson Rockefeller took Ford's vacancy as vice president, seeing out his last years in in politics uh, as vice president of the United States. And that left Gerald Ford when he ran for office in 76 against Jimmy Carter to have Bob Dole run with him as his running mate. Dole, of course, would become famous 20 years later, ironically, as the head of the Republican ticket in 1996 when he was running against a certain Bill Clinton. And a side note, at some point in the lives of all four of the people running for president and vice president in 1976, all of them at some point in their lives lost presidential elections. Jimmy Carter, who would of course lose in a landslide to Ronald Reagan in 1980, and his vice, pre- his vice president, Walter Mondale, would lose in an even bigger landslide to Ronald Reagan in 1984. Gerald Ford, as we know, lost in 76. And Bob Dole would lose to Bill Clinton in 1996. What a funny world politics is. And since Watergate... The word gate has tended to be added at the end of words to come up with a new name for a scandal. <coughs> Partygate. Anyway, 
I hope you enjoyed this. I could have gone into further detail, but uh, as it is, when I started recording this last bit, it was it was over half an hour already. But enough of me rambling. Tune in to the next one, and uh, you'll hear me very soon. <laughs>